Many famous men and women have found their final rest in Highgate Cemetery. Michael Faraday rubbed shoulders with George Eliot, Christina Rossetti with Anna Mahler. Yet, of all those who lie interred in this 40-acre plot, Karl Marx and his imposing tomb surely casts the greatest shadow. He is one of the most influential and controversial thinkers of the modern age. Upon his gravestone, the following phrase is etched. The philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. But what did Marx actually write? What were his influences? And have world events since his death served to strengthen or to undermine his theory of history? With me to discuss Marx himself and Marxist writings are Xavier Cohen, a third-year undergraduate student studying PPE at Balliol College, and Cameron J. Quinn, a first-year DFL student studying French at Merton College. Cameron, we have a huge topic on our hands today, but let's start with something maybe slightly more manageable. Where did Marx come from? Um, well, Marx was born on the 5th of May, uh, 1818, in Trier, in Germany. Um, he was born to a Jewish family, but didn't have a particularly religious upbringing or anything. In fact, um, his father, who was a lawyer, officially renounced his religion and switched uh, to Lutheranism. Despite the fact that Trier was a heavily Catholic town, um, he switched to Lutheranism, but in Trier, the uh, sort of social elite uh, were Protestant, and so that served the Marx family relatively well. Um, having said that, though, uh, Marx's upbringing was, was not religious either in a Jewish or Protestant sense. It's speculating too much to say that a relatively secular Jewish upbringing is going to lead on to his great, basically, atheist philosophy. Um, but certainly it is the case that the kind of ideas that he grew up with, that his father exposed him to, weren't particularly religiously freighted. So he would have read um, certainly things like uh, important thinkers of the French Enlightenment, like Rousseau or Diderot. Um, he then went on to study law and philosophy at university and wrote a dissertation and got his uh, PhD at the age of 24, I believe. Um, or actually, 21. I think he was very young when he yeah. got his PhD. Yeah, so uh, he got his, his PhD at 21, and then I think uh, straight away started working in uh, journalism. He worked for a newspaper called the Rheinische Zeitung, yeah, the Rhenish Gazette, the Rheinische Zeitung, whether you're doing it in English or German, and worked as a journalist. He covered uh, a number of different questions, obviously, re reporting in early 19th century journal uh, journalism was a a different thing than it is today. Notably, he wrote about the effects on peasants uh, who would collect wood from land that was once common, but then became, uh, it was declared to be private property, and so they faced um, prosecution because of that. He wrote about that and other economic questions. And that's really the sort of, in a nutshell, early Marx. He, he's moving about Central Europe, he, he ends up in, in Paris, and eventually he's going to live in London for most of his life. He met Engels, I believe, first in Cologne, but they had this big meeting in Paris in about mid-1840s, 1844, mm -hmm. I think. This man, Frederick Engels, would have a huge influence on Marx's life. Engels was the son of an industrialist um, who had factories in England, Manchester, I believe. And he was of a similar cast of mind to Marx early on. They 
both knew about Hegelian philosophy, which was uh, which had a lot of sway at that time. Um, and they began collaborating on uh, journalistic enterprises and on writing together on political economy. Later on, Engels would become a major, uh, of, of extremely major importance for Marx because effectively Engels supported Marx financially uh, during all the latter half of his life uh, when he was uh, working on capital uh, because he used the proceeds from his factory to fund Marx, uh, what some people have seen as a great irony, um, <laughs> that Marx was um, benefiting from industrial production in England. I think Engels was also incredibly impressed with Marx's intellect. Marx, as a student, was very keen on Shakespeare. He would quote Shakespeare to his, his Baron von Westphalen, something, something <laughs> like this. Xavier, Marx was incredibly influenced, as were almost all of his German contemporaries, by Hegel, the great uh, philosopher of the previous generation. Can you describe to us a bit of uh, what Marx got from Hegel, but maybe how he turned Hegel on his head? Sure, yes. It's often said that um, Marx... Marx would say about himself that he turned turned Hegel on on its head. Not so modest statement. <laughs> the, the the key part of Hegel that Marx is a kind of a, a part of a much wider kind of debate and discussion that is Hegel's philosophy of history. And Hegel thinks that there are importantly that there is a kind of notable pattern in history, a kind of driving force in history, and that this can be uh, understood by us. And we can see where we are in this in this part in history, and that history is heading towards a certain place. Interpretations of Hegel kind of often said to have fallen into into two camps around the time of Marx's youth: uh, the right Hegelians or the old Hegelians, and the left young Hegelians. Marx was a part of the the left Hegelians, who, unlike the right Hegelians, the the, the latter kind of had a more conservative interpretation of Hegel's philosophy and when Hegel said that the the culmination of historic progress was to be found in the the contemporary Prussian state where one would find the development of of reason manifesting kind of freedom and liberty for all men and and, uh, rational beings. Um, The left Hegelians Look to develop Hegel's Hegel's philosophy in less religious um, and less conservative direction, which um, meant kind of admitting that or recognizing that uh, history wasn't at its end in the mid nineteenth century, and that there was uh, still a, a way to go to to progress things. An important thing that Marx did here that was important in turning Hegel on his head is that where Hegel saw categories of like mind or the absolute which are often seen as like akin to god as the kind of ideal development uh, agent in history that is uh, a part of all of us um marx or the material categories of men in in our concrete lives uh needing to produce for ourselves work so that we can eat and continue to live as creating the kind of um ideological realm within which our ideas and language rests. Obviously, Marx isn't in inventing socialist thought from, from, from nothing. He's drawing on socialist traditions, be it kind of the kind of workers' movements, trade unionism that was present in Britain, France. But um, theoretically important, he, draw, he draws on the utopian socialists. And um, 
I think often because they're kind of a, a close rival to the thought of the materialist thought of Marx and Engels, you often find in Marx and Engels very kind of critical, patronising tone towards the utop- utopian socialists <laughs> who were, you know, s- silly and immature in their in their thought because they weren't historically grounded. They didn't have a view of history, which he takes from Hegel. Right? This, this is the important thing we see where he kind of blends these two things, takes these two traditions together. Cameron, you spoke earlier about how there's almost a, a dictionary between the ideas that Hegel developed in a slightly religious context and Marx's economic viewpoint, mm. but often saying quite, quite similar things. Hegel's philosophy, which is not the basis of Marxism, but it's sort of the soil in which Marxism grows. You often hear in relation to Plato and Aristotle that, you know, Aristotle flipped Plato upside down because Plato, Plato has these universal categories, the forms, um, and everything in the world are pay limitations or instantiations of these absolute forms. Aristotle, on the other hand, goes for a more empiricist line and says, um, everything that we see in the world, we then sort of categorize. And so it's from the, from the data, as it were, that we construct our categories. And it's a very similar procedure with Marx and his philosophical forebear, Hegel, where Hegel has this very religiously tinged philosophy. It's in- influenced a lot by uh, different Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, where you have this idea that all human minds are part of an overall uh, phenomenon that's called mind, but they don't realize it yet. And so uh, over the course of history, various uh, things sort of clash against each other and eventually lead to this great synthesis, which destroys the divisions between all minds and comes to this realization that all minds are one. Marx considered Hegel's philosophy to be structurally sound. That is to say that the, um, the patterns that Hegel described of uh, a dialectic progression of different phases through history culminating in some ultimate realization of perfect oneness. In the case of Hegel, this is an ideal progression where minds realize that they are not individual minds but part of one great thing called mind. Um, Marx saw a similar thing with class divisions and antagonisms where you have various phases of history that correspond to different class antagonisms wherein different classes conflict and then a social revolution breaks out and you get a sort of new paradigm. But that paradigm in itself is a new uh, arena for class conflict between different classes, newly constituted classes. So he, as it were, translates Hegel's ideal progression into a material progression uh, in which the what he calls forces of production and relations of production are of utmost importance. You've introduced the idea of class struggle to us here, which is the, the key, one of the key central themes to all of Marx's writings. Perhaps what we should uh, do now for the, the next section of the programme is just, in a rather uh, rushed way, of course, deal with the main tenets of Marx's historical philosophy. Xavier, can you start with how Marx views the economic reality of capitalism as he sees it in Victorian England? So... For Marx, capitalism is 
one of several uh, what he would call modes of production that have that have gone before. A mode of production is a kind of economic system, if you like, that prevails at a certain time in history. And what characterises modes of production are the ways in which people relate to one another and objects um, in production. So a really important determining factor in what a, a mode of production like capitalism is, is what's going on when we consider what he would call the means of production. The means of production are things that are used um, in order to produce things. Factories, an image we can have in our heads when we think of means of production. Factories, tools, um, land. Um, in capitalism, the means of production are owned by uh, a certain class, the capitalist class or the bourgeoisie, as Marx called them. Um, and they employ rather than, say, own the working class. So in previous modes of production, they might have included slavery or a kind of relationship of, of serfdom. In capitalism, workers themselves are free to sell their, their ability to work, what Marx would call their, uh, their labour power. They're free to sell that to any, any capitalist they want. But ultimately, they're not free when we consider them as a group because they are forced to sell their labour to some labour power to some capitalist or perish. And um, it's this kind of relationship of some who own that which is used to produce and those who actually make it that Marx, especially in his uh, earlier part of his life, but would have continued to have seen this in the later part of his life, would have seen this as a, a wrong, an injustice, a bad thing about, about capitalism. Um, and so this is what he's writing in the Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In his... Which is a sort of a, a vulgarising text, really. It's, um, it's, a, it's a piece of propaganda. It's the manifesto of, of a communist party. And so what it does is it, it puts some of this basic but quite complicated philosophy in relatively understandable terms. Uh, it talks about all heretofore existing histories and the history of class struggle closes with his famous um, talks into the workers saying, you know, you have nothing to lose but your chains, you have a world to win. But within that text you do find the lineaments of a broader theory of history and historical progression um, in which he really highlights the connection between these forces of production and the relations of production that they give rise to. You sometimes uh, hear talk of the economic base that is to say, the technology and, and stuff that's around and what that stuff is capable of doing. So obviously there's a, there's a vast difference between, you know, factory manufacture as you have it in China these days and a plow, as you might have had in medieval times. And um, the fact of that disparity in each case leads to a very different set of relationships. So uh, we talked a bit about uh, wage labour under capitalism, wherein uh, workers sell their labour to the people who own the means of production. That's a different way of these uh, different classes interacting than previously. But Marx really highlights the fact that it's um, dependent on the forces of production as they exist. So the technological developments in the means of production are the main driving factor for Marx of the class struggle. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, well, it's certainly a driving factor in historical progress. 
um, because as advances are made in the means of production and you get more technologically advanced and you can produce more and, and do more stuff with technology, um, there's sort of a lag time between that and new relations of production. So let's say you come up with this vast new technology, the steam engine, um, that will enable you to do immense amounts of new stuff that just couldn't be done before, but it will also imply, according to Marx, um, new ways of organizing labor, production, distribution, and all that. The problem is, the steam engine is here now, and they don't say, oh, well, we've created a steam engine, we've got to come up with a new way of organizing the economy. That's not how history works. Um, the steam engine happens, and starts doing things and changing and progressing. And over time, uh, it becomes less and less compatible with the way that things have been organized until then. Uh, and this leads to what Marx calls contradictions between uh, relations of production, that is the way that people interact, and the forces of production as they exist. And these contradictions, he says, uh, will be reconcile, not really reconcile, but they'll explode in a social revolution which will change the landscape. And that's what you see between the feudal period, wherein you have serfdom as the, the main sort of relation of production, and capitalism or, or the bourgeois mode of production. So during, most people fix it at about the um, 17th century, 18th century, the rise of the bourgeoisie, uh, and you have massive changes with the, the rise of a merchant class because of the technology that you have. And so that change is brought on by uh, the changes, changes in technology. Uh, a similar kind of analogy would be that many would say today, perhaps of Marxist persuasion or not, that the internet, uh, you know, internet activists who look to kind of free up data will say, you know, data wants to be free, and that we've got these new technological things that give us a kind of abundance, perhaps of the kind that Marx envisages, that... You know, if I make a song and upload it, you need some fancy algorithms that Apple might provide you, you know, in, in the iTunes store to prevent that from being accessible to everyone. But ultimately, we can freely distribute such a thing to everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's a certain economic system that we have, capitalism, that needs to make sure that can't be done um, so that one can continue to make a profit, which is the basis of people continuing to work. Uh, under under such a system, and we you know we see with people talking now about changes in in capitalism today. Some would say post capitalism, certain kind of post capitalistic tendencies we're seeing due to the changes in in technology, in the information knowledge economy areas. So this I think we can continue to see such a theme, be it in the more specific terms that Marx laid out, be it be it that way or not. This theme of technology influencing economic system, we kind of still see this as a very relevant th dynamic at play mm. today. Mm. Marx had a strong sense of the scarcity of a good or a commodity being very important for capitalism's ongoing uh, success and progress. Some people criticised him in later years for not understanding that capitalism could create new scarcities. Xavier, do you think that's a fair criticism? Marx was certainly aware of the possibility of you know bright young things to come along and create a new consumer product that we may or may not think uh you know 
bring a great new thing into our lives you know we can we can provide examples where this might be a new fad for young people a furby or something that we think is a manufactured one that we might look at and think it's it's a shame that such a thing you know by manipulation of advertisement can be encouraged so that many people desire this new this new good um, and then with other cases, you know, with the two iPads sat, sat in front of us, we might think that this is a beneficial technological development that helps us to meet our, our needs and preferences in life um, more easily. But Marx was certainly aware that capitalism would develop new consumer goods in this way. But um, perhaps in his economic writings, he failed to foresee the extent to which this kind of ideological force to use his own terms that might be misleading people from their kind of true interests um, perhaps he, this is one of the things that has failed to to you know give the proletariat the, the revolutionary motivation that he said they certainly would have and he himself tried to instill in them well, Cameron let's focus in on what Marx had to say about revolution because that's what um, in the popular mindset at least is the most potent aspect of his thinking. Sure. Um, well, Marx said that effectively revolutions were inevitable. They're sort of the, the locomotive of history insofar as they crop up with regularity when you have certain conditions in place. Those conditions being the contradictions between uh, the ways that you can do things and the ways that people organize doing things. So what he thought in the case of the current well, the current at the time that he was writing uh, situation, that what that is to say, uh, relatively advanced industrial capitalism, not at all as advanced as we have it now, um, but he thought that basically once you reach a certain level of contradiction, which he saw occurring because of the continual division and redivision and redivision of labor, um, because already in Marx's time you were seeing uh, people in factories doing smaller and smaller tasks, and this sort of culminates in Fordism that you get in the 1920s in America, where people are sort of screwing one screw onto a car, and that's their whole job. I mean, you can think of um, Charlie Bucket's father in Charlie and the Chocolate mm -hmm. Factory, whose sole job is to twist toothpaste caps onto toothpaste. This, Marx says, is deeply alienating, but it, it also will lead to conflict because, well, of a number of, a number of reasons. One of the problems is that um, people will be so alienated from their uh, human natures that they will basically revolt against the order that sort of dehumanizes them to such a degree. And so Marx says that there have been a number of social revolutions throughout human history, and the next one the one that will happen because of the, the class conflict between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, will be the last one. Um, because human history will reach such a point that the, the division of labor, this time, won't just be changed by a social revolution, it will be abolished. And you'll have a situation in which, uh, because of uh, advanced industrial technology, we'll be able to provide for all of our needs um, in an equitable way, and it will lead to... Um, new ways of distributing things such that everybody will have their needs met and you can be a, a full human being, which is always what he sees as the end point 
of human history, or rather the beginning point of human history, because he says that um, we are currently in the prehistory of human society, and it will only be once we reach socialism and then communism that we'll enter human history uh, through the destruction of the division of labor. That will happen through a social revolution, which he thought was um, coming up quite soon, and he tried to sort of bring about himself in a few advanced industrial societies of his day. Obviously, that hasn't happened, but that was something that he was anticipating at the time he was writing, coming quite quickly. That turn of phrase of, of, of Marx's, quite sassy, the, the, the prehistory, mm. we're still in moments of, of prehistories, the kind of propagandizing rhetoric of, you know, just how primitive uh, capitalism is compared to our full communist potential. That's kind of typical of... of of the ways in which Marx was n not just a kind of distant commentator on the world around him, but you know, someone who conceived of himself as a revolutionary who was trying to persuade others to to change the world, to change the world around him. I mean, this is a rather bold question. Hope you forgive me, but do you think Marx ever saw himself as almost a messianic figure, leading the proletariat to this beginning of history as he saw it from the current prehistory? If he did, he would be going against his own thinking in doing so, because he, he would go against a certain kind of great man interpretation of history in which some you know, great figure comes along and with their genius and power move human history into a new direction, he would say that he was a product of history. If, if Marx didn't see himself as a messiah, um, other people yeah. certainly have seen him in those terms. I mean, Bertrand Russell has a, a famous comparison of Marxism as an ideology to, to Christianity, wherein there are various analogues between them. So in this comparison, which is a bit mean and a bit unfair, but nevertheless amusing, um, Marx is the Messiah, the elect of Christianity would, would correspond to the proletariat, uh, the church would be the communist party, uh, the second coming would be the revolution, and so on. So I think um, that does point to a a degree of religious thinking, or at least religious um, structures of thinking, that could be said to exist in Marxism. That doesn't necessarily mean it's an invalid philosophy, but it is something that people have sort of flagged up. Yeah. We can come back to some of the more precise economic writings of, that Marx wrote later in his life in Das Kapital, um, but I feel that it's the right time to talk about some of the uh, purportedly Marxist revolutions in the 20th century that did not come about in the way that Marx himself would necessarily have predicted. Mm. Um, so, Cameron, do you want to let's take the example of the Russian Revolution? Sure. Um, well, the, the tricky thing about the Ru Russian Revolution, um, and most 20th century revolutions indeed, is that, is that they simply don't correspond to Marx's model of uh, social revolution, as, as we've sort of discussed. So Marx predicted uh, social revolutions in the most advanced industrial countries. So at the time, that would have been Germany, the UK, and France, um, maybe the United States, but that's a, always, as always a bit of a different question. Um, but he was expecting these revolutions to come about in these highly advanced capitalist countries because they had um, significant proletariats. That is to say, they had significant numbers, in some cases in the millions, of uh, industrial workers who worked in factories and were boldly being, being exploited by their employers, um, who he thought would 
be the driving force behind a social revolution. Now, in, in the Russian example, in 1917, Russia was effectively uh, an, agra an agrarian or even a close to a feudal society. I mean, you know, Tsar Nicholas had only abolished serfdom shortly before, a few decades before. Um, and so it was um, not unusual for Marxists to say at that time that Russia uh, was a backward nation. Um, and so to think that that would be the place where the first Marxist-style revolution with a seizure of the means of production would occur, it's not something that Marx would have predicted at all. It nevertheless happened. And the, the reasons for that are, well, <laughs> endlessly debated. But, but do you feel it was a rather different kind of revolution? It was a more opportunistic revolution by a rather small group of people. I, 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 would, I would say that because um, in the case of Lenin, I mean, Lenin developed Marxist theory, or what he said was Marxist theory, in a, in a certain direction, uh, a direction of basically revolutionary strategy. Um, Lenin wanted to seize power in Russia. He had spent a lot of time in Germany, notably, um, with various German socialists and communists, and felt there was a propitious moment for revolution in Russia in the beginning of the 20th century. It tempted it in uh, the very early uh, 20th century. And then finally, in 1917, with the disorder that was brought about by the First World War, managed to take advantage of uh, a power vacuum to uh, take power. And that was, it has to be said, because of the success of Lenin's major theoretical and strategic innovation, which was the Vanguard Party. This was something that Marx didn't directly theorize, but that Lenin would have said he, he sort of derives from Marxist thought. And it's the idea that you need a radical party that can basically um, lay the groundwork for a social revolution and have it sitting there latent, ready for a revolutionary moment, which is what happened in Russia and, and which Lenin and the Bolsheviks seized upon. But it certainly isn't what any... Uh, what one might say a classical Marxist would have predicted. You know, there are there are cases uh, early on in the in the Soviet Union in I think nineteen twenty one in in Kronstadt where there's a a moment where workers quite militant workers of the kind that Marx might have you might one might envisage from Marx's earlier writings in the Communist Manifesto um, who are dock workers who are rising up against kind of um, bosses and a certain kind of authoritarianism that they're seeing coming in the, in the changes in, in the Soviet Union, who are kind of crushed by the, by the Red Army. Mm. And it's this kind of fight often between anarchists and Leninists. Mm. Um, so those who all kind of agree that ultimately we should end up in a, uh, a lovely utopian communist society, but who disagree, there are you know, strong disagreements there between how, how one should get there and people will use Marx who mm. will try and drag Marx onto their side by yeah. quoting different parts of his uh, of his work. And, and that, that I think is, is a really major difference with Leninism is the sort of authoritarian strain because I would have said implicit within the theory of the vanguard party that is this uh, sort of cadre which exists um, of effectively intellectuals um, which in, in, in the Russian situation it had to sort of be intellectuals who formed the vanguard party because you didn't really have a well-developed proletariat. Um, and 
according to the, the Marxist account of things, it'll be the the working class that rises up and drives the revolution. Whereas in, in the case of Lenin, it was a sort of relatively small, self-selecting squad of radical intellectuals who did a lot of the uh, fomenting and, you know, radicalized a portion of the working class. But they were driving it sort of from above, or at the very least from, from the side, right? Um, and so this almost elitist strain in Leninism that puts intellectuals above the working class, which was disputed at the time. I mean, Rosa Luxemburg was somebody who said that, you know, we need to give scope to the working class to determine the, the mode of their revolution. She was a sort of left Marxist uh, or more libertarian Marxist. Um, and I think this authoritarian strain that you find in Leninism, at least from my point of view, can go some way towards explaining uh, Stalinism and much of what happened later, which just had so little respect for the lives, much less the, the viewpoints of the working class. Now, I will say that there's a tendency on the radical left, especially since 1956, of excusing or explaining away uh, these revolutions in a sort of dogmatic Marxist way. What I mean by that is by saying... Um, oh, well, the Russian Revolution didn't follow what Marx said, therefore, Marx remains perfectly right, and we just need to pay attention exactly to what he said to the letter, uh, chapter and verse, um, and disregard these revolutions because they weren't really Marxist, right? I think that's a disingenuous um, way of looking at things, and I think that the sort of dogmatism with which uh, some... Marxists deal with these ideas is something that Marx himself wouldn't have uh, appreciated. I mean, he famously said when the first Marxist party was formed, uh, I don't know what Marxism is, but all I know is I'm not a Marxist. And I think that's because um, he, as we said, was a very practical political operator um, and was less concerned with sort of sticking to exactly what he wrote and more concerned with Reevaluating, constantly reevaluating. He has this this phrase, the ruthless critique of everything existing, and so I I would have thought that if Marx had lived until this day, he would have changed his doctrine umpteen times and all for the better because he was he considered what he was doing to be um, scientific socialism, and obviously science is in part all about testing hypotheses, disproving them. Um, putting theories out there and saying, oh, where are the holes in this? Um, and so the fact that Marx only lived until 1883 meant that he couldn't continue refining it. Other people tried to do it in his place, but obviously that grew into a whole web of different factions. Um, um, is there a difficulty that Marx himself, again, reevaluating for his own life and writing so much, mm. makes it, there's no one Marx that we can go and say, oh, that's what he thought. You said that he changed his opinion towards the end of his life yeah. about various issues. So I think, um, I think Lenin might have said that Marxism is a block of steel from which you know, no, no parts can be removed. Mm. It would be very, very strange for any given human with the kind of interest that Marx had to continue throughout their life and create an, entire, an entirely consistent... Um, philosophy or, or guide to political action um, throughout their lives. Let us return in the final ten minutes. Time flies. 
to some of the more specific economic points that Marx made later in his life. Um, he wrote a huge amount, I found when I was reading for this show, um, some of his mathematical writings in the 1870, I'm a math student myself, and he, um, he got interested in trying to rigorise uh, the calculus. He didn't succeed, but nonetheless, <laughs> that, that he should have written such a thing, with playing, you know, some non-trivial knowledge of the subject is quite extraordinary. He's not remembered for his mathematics, but he is remembered for his economics. And there's a particular point about how profits change as a capitalist society uh, develops that has become very well known. Uh, Xavier, do you want to head it up for us? So typically in what we would call perhaps modern economics or uh, neoclassical economics, um, there is a view that within capitalism, if we're even to mention such a word in, in, in economics, which we, which we might not do if you look at a kind of modern economics textbook, um, in economies, as they might say, we have ups and downs, moments where economies are growing, and then moments where economies are growing at a slower rate or even shrinking, um, recessions. And the picture that is painted is one of these ups and downs, but as time progresses in the long term, that's, that's all we have, these ups and downs, and there's no kind of big changes in the way that uh, capitalism works, economies work, apart from a general trend to growth. Whereas... For Marx, he sees kind of capitalism as a kind of historically specific mode of production, as we said before, um, a specific economic system that has a tendency and it changes as it as it grows and as time goes on. And part of this comes from what Marx sees as a tendency for the what he calls the rate of profit, which is the kind of rate of return, if if you like broadly, on investment that. Uh, on, on average, capitalists will get for the, the money that they put down in their businesses. So the rate of the, the, there is a tendency for that rate of profit to decline as time goes on. And as that rate of profit declines, um, this helps lead to deeper and deeper crises, which provide riper moments for the working class as unemployment is created, widespread suffering, um, riper moments for social revolutions. Um, for workers to recognise their true interests in fighting for a communist world and taking control of of uh, their of their businesses of their factories, and ultimately creating a new society over time. Um, interestingly, this profit for Marx comes solely from the workers. Um, the workers for Marx create all value. And we have a picture of the bourgeoisie as a kind of lazy fat cat doing nothing. So whereas in, in an economic textbook today, the owners of capital are rewarded, their profits are, reward, are, are seen as a reward for bearing risk on their capital that they can face to lose. For Marx, you know, you put down money in, a, in an industry, uh, you're very likely to get more back. And um, the workers are the only people producing the things that have value. And yet... Profits are being earned by capitalists who don't make any of the products. Mm. And workers are thus exploited. Um, and exploitation then becomes a quite kind of mathematical, economic category for Marx that he can measure, he measures in a certain kind of ratio in, in his work. And he'll measure this across time and will predict that, you know, um, the rate of exploitation as it leads to a kind of rate of profit will decline as, as time goes on. He was criticised later for, through no fault of his own, 
uh, coming before the so-called marginal revolution. Yeah, so the, the, the marginal revolution is a kind of change around the kind of turn of the, the 20th century and slightly before, where economics moves from what might be called classical economics to neoclassical economics, where the kind of methodology changes when people recognise the importance for rational agents of considering the marginal unit, be that, be that the kind of the next unit that a capitalist might produce, the next worker they might employ, and you know the, the cost to them of employing that next worker versus the profit that they would get from such a thing. And this way of thinking about things leads to quite a kind of widespread, much more mathematised approach to economic thinking. Not that Marx's approach wasn't mathematical uh, in its own right, but economics prior to this revolution is often seen as only of historical interest. And rather old-fashioned. Quite, yeah. Um, and not, not useful um, insofar as economics can be useful today, we're told. Um, um, in the dying moments, let us move towards some of the, the modern-day ramifications of Marx's uh, writings. There is a very strong analytical Marxism department in Oxford for the last kind of 30 or so years. Zavi, you were saying about that. Yeah, so interestingly, important, depending on one's point of view, uh, what one might call important developments in Marxist thought have taken place here in Oxford, um, probably since the kind of 1970s. Most notably, uh, a political philosopher who studied at Oxford and went on to become uh, the Cicelli Professor of Social and Political Philosophy, I think it's called, at All Souls, uh, G.A. Cohen, also known as uh, Jerry Cohen, embarked on a project that he called No B*** Marxism, <laughs> or if, if maybe that can be bleeped out, I don't know, uh, or uh, um, Analytical Marxism. And he saw kind of 20th century academic Marxist thought as being a part of what in philosophy you might call the continental tradition, which the analytic tradition, which prevails over the continental tradition in Oxford, would see as lacking rigour, lacking clarity, a general kind of fluffy pretentiousness would be the attitude that many would have towards it. And he struggled for many years with the, the, the Marxist philosophy of Louis Althusser, a kind of French structuralist, I believe, and sought to cut the rubbish from Marxism and um, create a kind of rigorous analysis of capitalism that would stand up to the kind of philosophical standards that were prevailing in Oxford uh, in his day, standards which had led to conclusions that would see Marxism as quite irrelevant in philo for, for philosophy. Doing so, he, he wrote a book called Karl Marx's Theory of History, A Defence, where he um, focuses especially on a mere paragraph of Marx's thought, um, prefaced to the contribution to the critique of political economy in 1858, um, which is often thought of as the clearest statement of Marx's theory of history. And he uses this, um, and he employs um, a functional explanation, which is the explanation that we find in, in science, in biology most notably, in um, evolution, where we say that a certain bird develops a certain kind of wing over another kind um, precisely because this kind of wing is the kind that will further the bird's flight or ability to live and reproduce. This kind of uh, explanation where one looks at the function of a given trait 
in order to explain why it exists. Cohen used finds in Marx, whether it's to be found in Marx or not, or to be contributed by, by Cohen is uh, up for discussion perhaps. But Cohen would say that the key thought in Marx is that um, the, the key thing in human history is that the forces of production, which are essentially the kind of technological capacity and the skills and knowledge that humans have in order to employ those to make things, so the ability to kind of make stuff, this is the kind of drive, ultimate driving force in history. It's not so much classes and class struggles. You know, this main force is carried out through them. And this needs to keep developing because humans desire more stuff and we're intelligent beings and this has broadly happened already and it will continue to happen, he thinks. Um, he sees the relations of production, that is the ways in which um, those who own or employ or rent the kind of broad relations of production that characterise a mode of production like capitalism, such a thing being determined and shaped by the forces of production. And it's precisely because the relations of production of capitalism are the best way of developing and giving us growth in a given historical moment. It's precisely because of that that capitalism is allowed to continue to exist. But as soon as we start to see a fall in growth, Cohen thinks that as soon as this starts to happen, as soon as a certain um, uh, mode of production, a certain dominant way of capitalists, say, purchasing the labour of workers, as soon as this starts to fail to provide us with growth, we'll start to see moments of crisis where new candidates, new options, new uh, economic potential economic systems will start to present themselves and ultimately, if one fails to continue to develop the force of production, it'll only be a matter of time until it gets replaced with another system that will. Well, so you've already begun and almost finished answering the final question I was going to ask Cameron before our, our time is all up. But, you know, we, we sit here around an iPad, which is perhaps more than anything else, you know, the, the triumph of our modern capitalist economy. And indeed, Marx himself was very admiring of what capitalism had managed to achieve. Mm. Do you feel, Cameron, do you feel that we are now in a society so far removed from that which Marx himself was able to observe and to gain empirical evidence from, that his theory that capitalism would ultimately lead to the revolution of the proletariat, do you feel that that might no longer apply? Well, I, I think dogmatism when it comes to Marxism is never to be desired, and I think Marx himself would have embraced um, a robust revisionism uh, when it comes to his theory taking into account new data. Um, I would say that the easy division of society into bourgeoisie and proletariat no longer holds, um, certainly in Western societies. I would personally identify it more of a global division of, uh, of class antagonisms. So it's no longer the case that um, the industrial working class is in one country and produces for that country and, and everything. And we're, we live in a globalised world, as we've been hearing from various jerks for the last 25 years. And the different classes that Marx describes, I think, are now globalised. And so you need some uh, degree of nuance to Marxist theory if you're going to keep it at all. But I do think that the Marxist toolbox of uh, focusing on the material facts of life, looking at the ways in which we are all affected and affect the world around us, and in so many different ways, 
uh, Marx is deeply, deeply relevant and deeply useful for evaluating the world and, as he would have said, for changing it. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for agreeing to rush through such a vast topic but with such uh, universal expertise. Next week is the final episode in this series of In Our Spare Time, and I hope you will join us. Thank you.